Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, everyone. This is Jeremy Scheinwald with a special episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. This is episode 50. And on this 50th show, we interview a homegrown success, 2013 fellow, Mike Wilner. He's sitting opposite for me, and I think he might have blushed a little bit when I called him success. Um, but he is. Mike started his career at J.P. Morgan, quickly realizing that he was cut out for a far less certain entrepreneurial path. He joined the then-nascent VFA, now well-established VFA, in only its second class, and after his training camp in Providence, moved to Detroit as the first employee of Boost Up, which we'll hear about in a moment. He was bitten by the entrepreneurial bug, and when he finished his fellowship, he and fellow fellow, or maybe fellow fellow fellow, uh, Taylor Sandali launched Compass. Check out hellocompass.com. It's a platform to leverage professionals to make building a website far easier. It's gotten way easier to build a website, but let's face it, it still takes a ton of time, effort, and a keen design eye to build one, and that's where Compass, again, Hello Compass, comes in. You can see some of their sample projects on their website Again, at hellocompass.com. But first, are you, in fact, one of those business owners who are in need of a new or upgraded website? You can do it yourself on Wix.com and sign up for an entirely free account today with hundreds of designer-made customizable templates to choose from. The drag-and-drop editor will help ensure there is no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com, or you can have Mike do it for you with Wix.com. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. Just go to Wix, Wix.com, to create your own stunning website today. And again, our guest today is Mike Wilner, co-founder of Compass, and that's a company that makes it easy and affordable to work one-on-one with a Compass-vetted designer to get a beautiful website. So if you love the tools Wix has to offer, but want to offload that building process, as I have done on several occasions with my companies, you can have Compass use a Wix.com template to build something that is stunning for you. Go to Wix.com today and check out Compass at hellocompass.com. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Uh, so, Mike, thanks so much for uh, for being here. Of course. You're number 50. We're really thrilled to have yeah, you here. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea coming into this. Yeah, we're going to be back for 100, 150,000, et cetera. Yeah. All, uh, all milestones will be with you. So we're thrilled to have uh, a VFA alum on the show. In your case, your class of 2013, so that's the second class that VFA had. Um, VFA was still kind of a startup itself when you joined VFA. How did you find your way to VFA? Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, you touched on J.P. Morgan, <clears throat> my internship there. Uh, through that experience, I realized that that was not for me. I definitely wanted to go the entrepreneurial route, wanted to start a startup, uh, but being a senior in college without a startup idea, without any money, without a team, um, you're kind of in a tough spot. 
So for me, I, I came across VFA pretty randomly when I was vetting or venting to one of my friends uh, during that internship. And basically, he knew of VFA for some reason, which is actually pretty strange because um, he, he was a paralegal in New York. So it was pretty spontaneous, but he told me about VFA. I Googled it. It was perfect. It was exactly what I needed, um, you know, a, an opportunity to take two years of learning. And that's what really kind of set me on this path. So it's just old-fashioned word of mouth. And, yeah, and, yeah. And I, to this day, I still don't know how he knew about VFA. Right. It's one of those things, like, I don't even want to ask him. I kind of like the mystery of it. It's, so. it's, just a, it's amazing how, how something fortuitous can happen. It can change the course of your life. Yeah. I, you know, you referenced um, J.P. Morgan. Um, you know, I, I actually also had a, had a fortuitous, in my case, I'm willing to say, fortuitously negative experience in J.P. Morgan uh, where uh, I was there and I was like, wow, I never want to work in a big institution or for anyone but myself again. Right. Was yours, like, was it a scarring experience or was it just like, hey, this just isn't for me? Yeah, it, it wasn't necessarily scarring. Um, it was a little more, for me, boring than it was, like, traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I just realized that I was a cog in a machine. If I didn't show up one day, nothing would change. Right. Um, and, and that wasn't really a good feeling. I didn't feel like the things that I was doing were having an impact, or I couldn't see what that impact was. Uh, so, you know, it's not even like it was only that I wrote off investment banking specifically. It was more a realization that I wanted to be doing something with my time where I could see the impact and like feel the impact. And so I kind of went in the complete opposite direction, was which was starting a company. If you're an entrepreneur, obviously, you're seeing exactly what you're building. And it was just the absolute opposite of that investment banking or consulting experience. So while we're talking about your past, I read your bio, and it says that when you were at uh, Washington Lee, you were um, you were a, a you know basketball fan number one there. Um, I think it says conference wide. You, you your your behavior <laughs> resulted in a conference wide ban on front row seating, and, I, and there's a huge smile on his face for those who uh, I, I would I would consider to be as a point of pride for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, we just got to hear that story. So how did you uh, yeah. how, how did you how did you uh, change the rules for your conference? Yes, yeah, so <laughs> for the better, of um, course. Of course. Um, so I was on the team for two years. Uh, before I became fan number one. And when I was on the team, I, I spent a decent amount of time on the bench. Uh, and I was a really intense supporter of my teammates as you know a player. Uh, but there's a limit to what you can do because I could get a technical uh, if I did too much on the bench. Um, but then once I uh, was on the other side of the gym, uh, I really had free reign. Uh, so I would show up to games 20 minutes early, build a rapport with the refs. They knew me by first name at that point. Um, and, then, you know, I, I would kind of run up and down the sidelines, <laughs> kind of like talking to the refs, talk, talking trash to some of the other players, like supporting my teammates just as I did when I was on the team. Uh, but the way the ban happened was that uh, other fans started to try to do what I was doing, but they didn't realize the work that went into it, right? Like I had to show up 20 minutes early, you know, soften up, butter up the refs. You gotta work at being a subversive. Right, there's a lot that goes into that. Become a subversive. So, uh, one day, you know, I kind of go up and down the sidelines and then uh, a younger uh, WNL student tried to do the same thing and he put his hand on the ref's shoulder and then that was, that was it for that. Uh, So, uh, I'm more tactful than to, you know, I I knew how to bend the rules. So, your your career ended uh, prematurely as as a quasi Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I still, you know, showed up 20 minutes early. I I just, like, cleared out the first section of the bleachers so I could still roam. Um, But, yeah, I was no longer on the hardwood, which was pretty disheartening. 
I, I think I think a lot of entrepreneurs. You've got to be a little subversive <laughs> to be an entrepreneur, and yeah. you got to be someone who like likes to stir things up and and have a little mischief. Yeah, uh, yeah. To be an entrepreneur, That's so fun. I'm sure it was telling. I'm sure people were like that kid who is going somewhere. <laughs> um, so you you know so you you found VFA fortuitously. Um, you do the training camp in in Providence, um, and then. Um, you know, you you ship off to Detroit where you're employee number one at Boost Up. And I read this article with you in, in Forbes where you talked about like really falling in love with with Detroit. Tell me, like, what did you what did you fall in love with? Yeah. So when I went through the whole matchmaking experience with VFA, I was basically just looking for a small company. I, I didn't care what city it was. I just wanted the right company to work at because I wanted to you know have an impact. Uh, but when I visited Detroit. I was pretty struck by the community of fellows that existed there and the impact they were able to have on the city and kind of the, the quite honestly, the confidence that they had that their actions were really driving Detroit forward. And that was something I was really attached to, um, just the opportunities that existed there. I've always been a bit of a contrarian. So like the idea of moving to Detroit in general, uh, I kind of pictured the look on my friends and family's face when I would tell them that, and uh, that also played a role. <laughs> um, so that was definitely what kind of drew me to Detroit. I also like Motown music, so that, that was an <laughs> added benefit. But yeah, r once I was there, I said, okay, uh, now I'm changing the way I'm going through this process. I just want to be in Detroit. Let's find a job here. Uh, and you know, my fellowship there was really a great experience. So you joined Boost Up. Maybe tell us what Boost Up is. Um, and what I think is amazing is that um, you know you joined as employee number one, other than the founder. Um, and just talk about that experience. Like first job, it's you and the founder. Like I think you know a lot of people would go into a, a big organization where they have well-defined training, and you know mm -hmm. they sort of can. There's less personal risk, and and like you know it's 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 you. How did you even know where to start? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, so I don't think I did. Uh, I think especially as a recent graduate at a startup and you know being just myself and the founder, it was a lot more, it was more like playing defense, right? Like I didn't know what to do. I didn't know like what actions I would take that would drive the business forward. So really I, I listened a lot. I tried to find my spots where, uh, you know, if something was going a certain way and I needed to allocate more resources to some part of the business, I would do it. So it was a lot more listening and reacting and then identifying an area where like the business needed my help and then learning as much as I could there. So for example, uh, there was a point where we needed help with product management. And so I actually <laughs> on the job Googled what is a product, ma a product manager. Uh, I actually did that. Um, and I read an article on called Product Management 101. <laughs> and, you know, th but then I reached out to people in my network that were product managers and, and had experience with that and, you know, could kind of show me where my blind spots were. So I was able to find areas in the business that needed my attention rather than just trying to, like, think to myself, like, what can I do? Because I really had no idea. Um, so it was a lot about listening, reacting to the business, uh, then finding my spots, and then using my network and just any resources I could, including Google, to figure it out. Because all of these things that I did at Boost Up were things I had done for the first time. I, 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 my apology. I would say you're, you're a podcaster. We're going to talk about your podcast philosophy <laughs> at some point. But but uh, my my problem, and Leandra can attest to this. She's always here listening from VFA, and you know, is that I ask very long winded questions, and my guest misses the first part. So tell us a little bit about what Boost Up is, ah. um, and then um, I'm also I'm, I'm 
Tell us a little about Boost Up. Sure. Then I'll come back and not, yeah, not yeah. commit the same error twice. No, absolutely. So Boost Up is a crowdfunding platform that helps you save up for a down payment on a car or a home. So okay. makes it a lot more accessible to you know, become a homeowner or a car owner. So they, they have partners like Hyundai and Quicken Loans that'll give you matching. You can also get friends and family to contribute. So, so in an environment that's like that fluid where you could just be doing many, many different things, how, how did you even know you were doing a good job? Uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. Uh, I, I don't think I did. Uh, a lot of it was being pro- proactive about asking for feedback, um, So especially when it's just like you and one other person. It is important to say, hey, uh, am I doing a good job with this? Or even looking externally to how other people have done things, like talking to my friends that were at other companies, doing somewhat similar things, but maybe at bigger companies where they had more management and, and more of a structure, I was able to see what they were doing well and kind of compare myself to that. So uh, you kind of have to be, when you're at such an early stage company, it's a weird thing to be scrappy about, but you do have to be scrappy about self-improvement and like getting feedback and figuring out how you can be doing better because you don't have much to compare yourself to. What were the takeaways from, from, from Boost Up as you started your own company? You know, what did you take with you? I'd say, you know, especially as such an early stage employee, uh, I definitely uh, believe that I could affect change in anything that I that like I put my mind to. And uh, I think that's something that VFA teaches a lot, just internal locus of control. Uh, but one thing I definitely learned was that there are some things you can't control, and it's better to acknowledge those things and then move on to the things you can control rather than just like trying to fix things with brute force that you'll never be able to fix. Okay, you got to elaborate on that. So so give me give me an example of, of that. Yeah, so like at Boost Up, um, you know, things like uh, getting more partners, right? Uh, you know, th- there were certain things we needed to improve with the product before we could get more partners, uh, but I wanted to you know, get more partners, so I was just focusing all my energy there. Uh, and you know, th- there was only so much I could do. Whereas if I acknowledge that, like, okay, based on the certain, based on this scenario, I can only do so much. Uh, maybe I need to focus my attention here, where I can actually make changes, and then that will allow me to achieve that end goal. Um, and, and I've carried that through to Compass a lot, and I'm still learning this. It's, it's a tough lesson to learn. Uh, but, you know, like I can only, I can't make someone get a website tomorrow if they don't want to, right? right? <laughs> um, but I can spend more of my time finding more people that may be interested. So I, I've spent, and we can get into this later, but I've spent a lot of my time uh, as like the salesperson at Compass, uh, just like barking up the wrong tree, just because I was like, oh, if I try harder, I'll be able to get them to you know, buy a website from us. Right. Uh, but that's just not the case. Uh, and once I started to allocate my time and energy more towards the things I could control, better things started happening. So th- hmm. that's kind of how I learned that at Boost Up and then translated it to Compass. We will get back to that. Perfect. That's, that's, that's excellent. Um, okay, so uh, what, what, at what point, I think you, you came into the fellowship knowing you were going to try to start a business. Is that mm-hmm. that's fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Um, because, I mean, some people will, will say, look, the startup world is for me, but I don't necessarily, I won't necessarily start a business. Um, and I'm curious, like, at what point in your experience were you, did you whittle down your list to Compass? Um, yeah, that, it's, a, it's a good question. It wasn't, uh, it's not like I had a list of ideas. Um, like, I, I think the most important thing to coming up with uh, a business idea, and you see this with all the fellow founded companies, is just to start trying because uh, you end up really stumbling into the thing that ends up being the business idea. So Taylor and I were working on a side project for 
basically a, a social event planning app, which was in retrospect, just a, a pretty bad idea. But, uh, <laughs> but it got us working together uh, and it got us in a very entrepreneurial state of mind where we were trying to build something. And uh, I ended up having a conversation with my dad about his website and the fact that he was getting quotes for like $5,000. And that's a, the kind of catalyst for Compass. But uh, we only would have seen that as a potential business idea if we were in that entrepreneurial state of mind trying to start something. Like if I've had that conversation with my dad before, but only because we were working on something did it kind of spark into like, wow, maybe this is the thing. Um, so that once that happened, I brought that back to Taylor, and it was something that he was really interested in. And we started talking about the the gap between people that needed these professional services and all the people that could be providing them and how we could connect those dots. Uh, that was something we both really s- sunk our teeth into. And then uh, we just put one foot in front of the other from there. So you observe this this pain point your your father had, and and I think a lot of entrepreneurship is about pain points. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just a clear indication that you know someone needs a solution. Um, but what, I mean, what there's there's sort of a you know there are pain points that are viable businesses, pain points that aren't viable. Right. What led you to think like, hey, Compass is a big pain point pain point for a lot of people, and I think we can develop a you know a business model that will solve this and be profitable. Right. Um, so it it came in a few stages that validation. I, I think the first thing is people willing to pay for it. Uh, so you can come up with a lot of ideas. You can get people nodding their head at an idea and say, like, oh, yeah, it sounds great. But until you get someone to pay for it and really invest either time or money into it, that's that's the real validation. So I made my dad pay for a website. <laughs> um, he didn't get, like, a, a free family discount or anything. Uh, so that was the initial validation that it, it was something that people were willing to pay for. Um, and then once we did our crowdfunding campaign in the Innovation Fund, we were able to get more people to pay for a website. So right then and there, we said, okay, we, we've gotten three or four people to spend hundreds of dollars on this professional service. So like, we definitely have something. Um, and then once we knew we had something, we started having conversations with more people in the industry. So we had conversations with people at Squarespace to better understand what was happening. Because we, at this stage, our product was building Squarespace sites for people. Um, and so, you know, when we started having those conversations, they validated that we were solving a very real pain point that uh, they were even trying to figure out because it was something they, they noticed that a lot of people don't want to do it themselves. Um, so th- that's kind of where w- once we had both people willing to pay us hundreds of dollars and people that were like really entrenched in this industry and the really the industry leaders telling us that, yeah, you are onto something and you should keep doing that. Um, that was all the validation we needed to keep going. If only you just had a bigger and bigger family that you could keep charging right, you know, and I just serve the Wilners. Yeah, well, my, we then, my mom became a customer a few months later. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Full now, fee or did your mom get yeah. a discount? Uh, she she got a discount, but right. uh, just a referral discount. It wasn't like a, a heavy discount or anything. <laughs> so so your, your parents are both entrepreneurs? Yeah, yeah. So that they both own their own businesses. And um, what kind of impact does that have on you? I mean, you know, were they always throughout your life? They've always been entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so my dad is uh, kind of a, he's done a lot of different things. Like he owned an arcade when I was growing up. He's owned a a uh, girls basketball recruiting business. Um, now he does video production and has his own business for that. So he's kind of you know one of your serial just all over the place entrepreneurs which is really fun to see and my mom has uh it, she was a speech pathologist and now she does like corporate communications training but it's her own practice so uh she's less of like the 
uh, I'd say opportunistic entrepreneur, more of the I have this trade skill, I'm going to create my own business around it entrepreneur, hmm. which is really cool to see. And, and that's like a lot of who we're serving with Compass is uh, not necessarily your typical tech startup entrepreneurs, but the more traditional <clears throat> definition of an entrepreneur, which is someone who's building their own business. Right. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been trying to uh, to get another guest's uh, mother to come on the show. So it'll be a race between, we'll have, okay. you'll, you'll, you'll be the first one, the first fellow to have both parents. And we'll bring them both in together. Yeah. Well, and the uh, other thing is that I know my mom is going to be listening to this and she's a, a public speaking coach. So I know she's just listening to every um and like that I say and just jotting down the minutes and going to give me a full report. After I'll this. ask her how many, if she yeah. can guess how many, <laughs> guess how many cups of caffeine I've had today. Because uh, I'm talking about double time here. So, uh, so but, but what, what did you take away from your, from your parents as entrepreneurs? I mean, like, was there a, I, you know, I mean, for, for instance, for me, my, my father's an entrepreneur, and I actually, it's, it's very weird for me because I think that he was the most risk averse of an entrepreneur that I could ever meet. And I feel like he actually taught me to like de-risk businesses, which is the opposite of what a lot of entrepreneurs, what you'd think of a family of entrepreneurs. Right. What, what did you take from your, uh, from your family? Oh, that's a good question. I think my, my parents were definitely grinders. They, they worked very, very hard. Like it, even I was back home last weekend and like my mom was on her computer at like 11 p.m. just like sending emails. So definitely learned a lot about work ethic and just what it takes to, um, you know, build a business and, and like that it's not easy. It takes sacrifices. So a lot of it is that. I also learned things that I don't want to do from them. Like uh, <laughs> they are grinders, but uh, I think uh, I know my mom is going to be listening to this, but I think they could manage their time better. <laughs> <laughs> so like I try to be very cognizant of that and understand what is like in my DNA and try to be self-aware of the fact that, you know, I, I do have a tendency to be a grinder, but also trying to be a little smarter about how I spend my time. I wonder if your mom's thinking right now, maybe if I had spent a little more time at the basketball games, he wouldn't have had that conference-wide rule yeah. to have him to have the basketball game cleared up. <laughs> Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So uh, let's talk about that sales that sales experience that, that you had. Um, you wrote a, gr- a great piece on Medium um, on how, you know, sales initially at least trumps technical ability. Um, I'm going to quote you here, five weeks and a few dozen phone calls later, we had our first three customers, all for one service, web design. With our first three paying guinea pigs and two designers, we had the beginnings of our web design <coughs> marketplace. You sold 40 more packages over the next six months. Um, and the way you described it and the way you said earlier is that you were kind of like gutting out every sale and just working very, very hard on every individual. How do you, I mean, how do you start? How do you start to develop a customer base for people who are sitting there saying like, yeah, okay, I've got a good idea, but like, I don't even, I don't even know where I would start to put myself out there. What did you do aside from uh, haranguing family? (laughs) Well, that was definitely part of it. Um, But it's like, I look back at how we got those initial customers and knowing what I know now, we could have done in a lot smarter of a way, (laughs) but I think you don't know that when you're getting started. And, um, you know, a lot of it came just from, quite frankly, hustle and like talking to my friends and seeing if they had like family members (laughs) or people that we could build websites for. Like uh, during the innovation fund, I was actually on vacation 
with all my college friends and we were on a beach and I was literally selling their parents on websites and <laughs> they kind of hated me for it. Um, but that, that was kind of how we had to get started. Uh, you have to start with what's closest to you because everyone has a warm network that they can start with. Uh, and so that was how we got our initial customers. But then from there, it was, I walked into retail stores and like just asked people if they needed websites. That was terrible. Was it um, successful at all? Did you find uh, anyone? Got one, got one customer that way, but it's just not a super effective way <laughs> to, depending on the service you provide, uh, not a super effective way to go and get customers. But um, we did cold emailing. We did like a little bit of everything because we didn't know what was going to work. We knew we had a product that people needed but we didn't know how we were going to get those customers. So at first, it really was brute force, try everything. Uh, we tried cold calling, we tried cold emailing. Cold emailing worked a little bit. Um, but then you, you start to reach points in time where you can only do so much more. So, okay, you're sending all these cold emails. Uh, great, it's working a little bit, but now I'm spending all of my time following up uh, and trying to like get people to put their deposit in. Uh, so it really, it, the first 40 customers for us like definitely came from gutting it out. And I think through that process, we learned a lot of the reasons that people didn't want to become customers. Mm. Um, we learned a lot about the right timing involved when people are ready to, to use our service. And then that allowed us to take what we learned and create more sustainable marketing strategies based on what we'd been hearing. So, you know, people saying, oh, well, I'm still going through changes with my business. Okay, well then they're not going to make a deposit no matter how hard I push them because they're just not ready. Learning about those indicators of like when someone is ready for our service allowed us to then go and create systems and a marketing funnel and marketing initiatives that have helped us get, you know, our next, you know, after those first 40, our next 170, right? Um, so th that's been the, the key thing there, I think when you're talking about your first customers, you, you just have to gut it out and understand that it's going to be pretty painful <laughs> because uh, that's how you learn. And we learned a ton that way. And if I could start over again, I, I would you know, figure it out a lot quicker. But especially as a first time founder, when you haven't really had a lot of experience selling a new product that is very nascent, um, just going out there and trying to sell in any way that you can is really important. So I mean, how's that? How has that evolved? Like, how has how has your marketing strategy evolved from, you know, cold calls and cold emails and 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 network? I mean, that's only so viable. You know, what is what is two point Yeah, yeah. So um, now the way we talk about it is instead of uh, Mike harassing people down the funnel, it's we present doors for people to walk through. Um, so we allow people to kind of demonstrate different levels of readiness for us. So we may have content on our website about web design tips. Uh, if someone downloads that, that means they're interested. They're not necessarily ready to become a customer today, but they're interested and we can set up you know, email campaigns so that they can then get more information from us and eventually demonstrate more intent if they do become ready. Uh, so we kind of are able to build a marketing funnel where people are able to engage with us in the way that they want to rather than the way that I want them to, which is to become a customer. Um, so that is a very big part of it. Uh, not forcing things on customers, really being able to say, okay, this person is at this stage. Here is what they need being at that stage, right? They don't need me to sell them. They just need more information and examples of websites and stuff like that. And really giving people what they need based on their stage has, has really been the important thing. And then so a lot of our marketing efforts, instead of just trying to go and sell websites, Understanding that 
there are different stages and just trying to get people into the top of the funnel, right? So doing lead gen efforts and people can walk through those doors as they're ready. We may go and do a Facebook ad campaign, for example, and uh, 10 people may give us their email address and two of those people may give us their email address and then continue walking through each of those doors very quickly because they are ready. Um, but it's really about letting people build the relationship with us on their terms because that also makes them happier customers, makes them more bought in um, rather than me trying to say, get your website today. And even if they're not ready, because then usually if you force someone to become a customer before they're ready, you're going to face problems from like a support standpoint. Yeah, um, so it's it, we're really big on allowing people to build their relationship with us on their terms, yeah. but setting up those mechanisms. I couldn't agree more. Like. Um when you when you push someone too hard to become a customer, the odds of them <laughs> becoming an unhappy customer are uh, are high. They're, yeah, they're coming yeah. in with a healthy degree of skepticism instead of like doing it on, on their own terms entirely. Right, right. Um, my company, we always say we're like we're just like a non-sales organization. Just let every single person determine it's the time yeah, for them. Yeah. But there is still an art to that. There are different kinds of sales. Non-sales is still a tactic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it, and it's interesting. Like you're 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 competing with like you know um, some you know massive do-it-yourself sites, even though even though it's 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 something that's different, um, because you're really working with them um, mm -hmm. to make it easier. You know, it's like they've got such huge advertising power to the point where we're going to do an ad for one of them in a second. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but again, you you're a compliment to them. But I mean, how do you how do you you know try and you know lift up your lift yourself up above the noise? Right, right. It's. Uh so we're not direct competitors because you know there are people that don't want to do it themselves, and that's who we're serving. Um, but from a marketing perspective, uh, they dominate the airwaves quite literally, as we're about to see. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you with that. No. <laughs> but but yeah, so it, we do compete against that from a marketing perspective. Um, and part of what we need to do is just be ready for people when they decide they aren't willing to build sites themselves. Uh, so we, we're really good at positioning ourselves relative to these companies and not being direct competitors. But the other thing is just letting our product speak for itself. Um, you know, it's it, these companies have so much marketing power, but if we're able to have really satisfied customers that are getting really great websites and we can show what those websites look like, um, then we show what the end result is. And people say, okay, I, I was thinking about doing it myself, but I just kind of want this in a few weeks and I want you guys to do it because I really like that site that you had. So leveraging our existing customers and turning them into evangelists, talking about how great the process is, uh, finding more niche markets where we can really speak their language. So, you know, Squarespace, Wix, GoDaddy, they're on Super Bowl commercials talking to everyone. If we can find ways to talk to dietitians specifically about their needs, um, if we can find ways to talk about others that are having very very specific pain points rather than just needing a website, which is a much more broad pain point. Um, you know, that's how we can win. Uh, so it's really finding ways to be a little more specific and being a little bit more like on the ground than some of these companies that are doing Super Bowl ads can be. 
We're here. We're talking. We're talking to Mike Wilner about his company um, Compass, which is HelloCompass.com, and um, and we've been talking a lot about websites and website development. And as you just said, you know, they're not um, they're not competitors with with uh, with your Wix.com. They are complements to them. Um, it still is challenging to build a website. You know, at times, or just in terms of your time and and uh, and design eye, and um, you know. A company like Compass can help you with their vetted designers um, to take the workload workload off your table completely. Um, you know, Wix is really, really uh, it's it's easy to use. They've got hundreds of templates and easy drag and drop tools. But a company like uh, like Compass can help you get it done a lot faster. And uh, and they're tested professionals, and maybe you're not. So you don't need to be a coder to make a website beautiful on Wix.com. It's free. You can go to Wix.com and sign up for an entirely free dot, uh, a free account today. No credit card required. It's easy. The results are stunning. But if you're like me, and you might have some colors that clash, or pictures in the wrong space, or just be not that technologically adept, you might want to call Compass and make sure that they, they can work with a company like Wix to get you where you want to go a lot faster. There's an opportunity, opportunity cost of time. Right. And that's something I think a lot of people don't understand about free. And it's like, yes, I could go there and do it um, myself, or I could pay someone else a very reasonable amount of money on Compass and get it done um, and get it done faster and more efficiently. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about efficiency now. Um, again, looking through, I think this is the same Medium post. It might not have been. doesn't matter, I guess. Uh, Quote, while I was selling, Taylor, your partner and VFA fellow, fellow, uh, was running a project management 12 hours a day, every day, and it was barely keeping us afloat. The stress was starting to overwhelm us. Our nerves were shot and our tempers were short. And that's sort of, objectively speaking, a, a typical founder dynamic. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but still, like, when you're in the moment, it's tough. So how do you come back from the abyss, uh, the edge of the abyss, when you're working with a partner and things are really tough how do you how do you keep a co-founder relationship strong during a little internal strife yeah yeah I, I think well first of all <laughs> i think that that dynamic between taylor and i um i think it remains to this day he's the operator i'm the growth person and those things naturally clash right we're trying to grow in a way that sometimes stretches our capacity uh so there's pretty natural uh clashing between us that bubbles up moderately frequently but the the way that you can then like understand and have a good relationship as co-founders is we actually have feedback sessions that we do uh where we talk about you know the things that we're doing well uh like one-on-one -on -one and like throughout the team um where you know taylor will tell me hey mike you're not listening to me <laughs> or something like that and i can you know we can talk about it and, and get a better feel for how we can complement each other how we can operate as a you know as co-founders in a way that will further what we're trying to do with compass so there have been feedback sessions where taylor says you know i feel like you're not you're ignoring operations or uh, that you don't care about like the sustainability and the, the, our ability to like fulfill what we have and i'll say to him like i totally hear you but i need you to know that like the way i am approaching this my role is growth um we're naturally going to clash so know that i do understand but i i need to continue to push us to keep growing so like having that type of honest conversation with each other rather than just being at each other's thro throats not understanding what is like underlying that has been really huge to help us like grow as co-founders 
um, and, and figure out how to complement each other. It's actually funny. Taylor and I, when we started working on a side project together, we were really concerned that we were too similar. Um, hmm. And through those feedback sessions, we actually realized that we are complete opposites. And it actually allowed me to understand where Taylor was strong and I could completely ignore those things, which allowed me to double down on some of my strengths, which were where Taylor was deficient. Uh, so we've been able to kind of figure out how to like change ourselves in order to make ourselves a more complete unit by doubling down on our strengths and letting each other kind of pick up our weaknesses. It's a really fascinating point about how you thought you guys were very similar and discovered you were quite different. Is that because in terms of your, your everyday personality and your friendship, you guys got along very well? Like, you, you know, it, it's interesting to me in that I, I think that a lot of founders come together because they get along socially, which is a very different way of getting yeah. along than when the chips are down, you're, I don't know, you're, you're, you're spending your, your own personal right. capital and trying to make something go. Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was a lot of like, oh, we're both business-minded. Um, neither of us are technical. Uh, so we thought that all of our strengths were going to be like similar things. I had a bit of an analy analytic gear to me just because I, I studied math. He was very analytical. Um, you know, we both, you know, spent time on like business development type stuff and product management. So our, our past experiences were very aligned. But as we started to work together, as we had these feedback sessions and told each other what we thought we were good at and what we thought we could use improvement on, we started to realize that like, wow, so-and-so is, you know, Taylor is so much better than me at this thing. Um, I'm a lot better at that thing. I should spend more of my time here. He should spend more of his time here. Uh, and that's what helped us kind of figure that out. So you talked about how, how you guys both, like neither of you initially were, were that tech-oriented or technical, mm -hmm. technically oriented. Um, and you also wrote about how you kind of built the wrong tech to start. How, how do you build the wrong tech and how do you make the wrong tech right? Yeah, so I think um, that came from when Matt, our third co-founder, came on board. Um, you know, he, we were really excited for him to start building technology because to that point we had acquired 40 customers all through building without technology. So using Google spreadsheets and crazy integrations and kind of building a ad hoc platform uh, using existing tools. So we got really excited when Matt came on board. We said, okay, finally we have our technical co-founder and we wanted him to just go and start building things. Um, and we thought with a solution first mindset and we ended up building something that our customers didn't actually need. Um, and so because we were just excited and we built tech for the sake of building tech, because now we had a technical co-founder, that's what led to us building the wrong thing. Uh, and that the, what that taught us is we need to be building tech to solve problems that we're having, to solve bottlenecks. And unless there's like a, a problem that's sticking out that we need to automate, um, then it's not worth building because we can continue to, do, to build without tech and use these existing tools. Um, so now whenever we do build technology, uh, the way it works is you know, we do it manually first usually with like literally manually through email or whatever, then we try to processify it using existing tools like spreadsheets and Zapier and all these great tools that make workflows easier. And then once we've validated that something is working, uh, the, the kind of operationalized version of something is working, then Matt can go and turn it into technology. So uh, by doing it that way, the things that we're building, we're not guessing on. 
we know that they improve our process and we know how much time they're going to take out of things. Uh, and so we're very confident in the, the time that we do spend building technology because especially as first time founders, it can be really tempting to just go and build things. Uh, I think I, I, I joke with people that you know, this is called smart people should build things. The, the podcast, uh, Andrew's all about smart people should build things. Uh, I kind of, th- I think one of the big things is smart people should sell things. Because really, in, until you have people that are willing to pay for something, there's nothing to build from like a product standpoint. And I think it, it can be very comfortable and fun and enjoyable to build a product or build technology. It's a lot less fun and comfortable to go and sell something. But until you have customers that are paying for something and have certain expectations that you need to meet, then what you build doesn't really have much of an application. So that's kind of the mentality we've taken is, you know, sell first, uh, be scrappy and, and fulfill it manually, start to operationalize it, and then turn it into a product. I think that's actually incredibly sensible advice. You know, you get, just get, you, most companies don't have the luxury of time. And, and I mean, you guys were bootstrappers to start. Yeah. And, uh, and you don't have the luxury of raising, most people don't have the luxury of raising money. You gotta find, you gotta find a way to make money yeah. to start. Yeah. And that comes with sales. And sales is tough. It's people, really hard. people think that sales like, oh, you know, you just, you're, you're, you're a, you know, uh, somewhat, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, your mom's gonna be upset with me for, for stammering here and, and looking for my words, but you got a big personality, you can go in there and you can you know, buy some people some drinks and you can get a customer, and that's just not the way nope. sales works at all. And so I think that's, that's super advice. Um, I, I have 15 questions for you uh, still, and, and, we're, and we're getting close to, we're, we're, I'm starting to see the end come yeah, here, yeah. so I wanna, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit, uh, not that you know, but you, uh, so, so you, as part of, of, of building Compass, you had to relocate yourself to Philly for you know for the VFA incubator, and I mean, how hard was it to, to say goodbye to Detroit, which you really enjoyed, and I, you were pretty committed to, to building that community. Yeah, yeah, it was that was tough. Um, you know, I had grown attached to a lot of the people there, uh, and so I've been able to really maintain a lot of those relationships. Um, yeah, I still talk to. Max Nussenbaum a lot and, and Alex Persky Stern and a lot of the guys that are out there building companies. Uh, so so that there's kind of a bond that we built being kind of in the cut in Detroit. Uh, we'll kind of always remember like those initial classes that really helped kind of get things kicked off there. Uh, so yeah, I think it was, it was very hard. Um, but much like a lot of things with starting Compass and just this past three years, um, I don't think I ever knew what was happening in the moment, <laughs> like the implications of what was happening in the moment. Like when I joined the VFA incubator uh, in Philadelphia, you know, I was just doing the next sensible thing. Um, and it wasn't even like 100% that I would stay in Philadelphia. There was a possibility that I'd go back to Detroit. But really what this past three years has been is just putting one foot in front of the other. And when Matt joined the team, and Matt was from Cincinnati, so it didn't make sense for us to go back to Detroit because you know, he had no reason to go there, uh, we decided to stay in Philly. So a lot of what these past three years have been, like people talk about uh, starting a company and taking a huge leap, it really doesn't feel like I've taken any huge leap. Um, it feels a lot more like many, many tiny leaps that felt just right at the time. Um, and now I look back at where you know I've gone from you know, three years ago to now, and it does look like a long distance, uh, but you don't get there through like one long stride. Uh, so it's really 
leaving Detroit, uh, you know, posting up in Philly, all the different steps along the way, getting first customers, going full time. It was all just the next thing. And it, it really, people talk about entrepreneurial entrepreneurship as this huge risk that you have to take. It hasn't felt like any huge risk at any point in time. It's been just small, digestible risks that I was able to take in the moment. You gave me a, a perfect segue, because this is an Andrew Yang question, and, and I think it's a great question, which is that, you know, that businesses, we think of people shaping businesses, but businesses also shape people. And you know, how, how have you as a person, not just a manager, but as a person changed through, I suppose the VFA experience, but also you know, a year of gutting it out and finding solutions and, and, and building Compass? Yeah, I think a lot of people coming out of college have a pretty idealistic view of the world. Um, yeah, one thing that starting a company will show you is uh, how real things are. Uh, so selling someone, getting someone to give you money for something. In theory, it sounds easy, but in practice, it's really hard. Uh, a lot of those things that all sound easy in theory are just really, really hard. So uh, it's given me an appreciation for like anything entrepreneurial and what people have done. Uh, I don't I really don't judge people that much anymore about like, oh, the business that they've built because I just understand how difficult it is to build any business now. Um, so that's one really big thing. Also, just my tolerance for bad things happening has gone up dramatically. <laughs> like, I, was, I was hoping for up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like, you know, I'd say when we started Compass, like one customer service issue would like keep me up at night. And now it's like the, the amount of uh, things going wrong that I can just let roll off my back uh, is scary at times. Just that how comfortable I've gotten with that, but but it's also necessary to keep sanity while running a company. Because uh, if you're not, if things aren't going wrong, then um, you're probably you know being playing a little safe. Uh, so, so I've come to be a lot more used to fires and dealing with crises and and figuring just trusting that it will be okay. Because I've seen it happen and be okay, uh, and knowing that each fire that comes up. It, it, everything's going to be okay and just having confidence in that. So I ask you an Andrew Yang question. Here's a Jeremy Scheinwald question. Um, it, it, it captures my mentality as an entrepreneur, which is, you know, you've got this, I, I meant to see an, an internal correspondence. You, so you've got this very strong pipeline of clients. You're doing in one month what you used to do in, you know, over a six-month period or something like that. Um, but are, are you still, is every sale still like a little bit of a rush? Or, you know, are you constantly checking your sales every hour, every day, every you know minute. You tell me. Yeah, it's a bit of a problem actually. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I, compulsion. Like, yeah, I. I mean, I still do all the sales calls, which is I love that. Like, that's uh, kind of where I get a lot of my energy from. Uh, so I still do all the sales calls. I get really excited. Like sometimes you have a sales call where it's just a perfect fit and it's just exciting, and, and my teammates can attest to like the the yells and just weird noises I'll make after I have off a, <laughs> a good sales call. Um, and yeah, when, when people convert, it it still like feels great each time. Um, you know, while I have gotten better at letting crises roll off my back, I still get very emotionally attached to each customer at this point, um, which is a, which is also something that's like, a, as we continue to grow, I want to keep that because uh, I care a lot about each person. Um, and, you know, it's, it's amazing to see like the opportunities we're able to create. But uh, it, with scale, uh, there are trade-offs. Um, so just trying to figure out that balance. I don't think I can ever kind of 
not look at the, the websites we're creating or uh, enjoy like getting to know our customers. Uh, that's something I want to maintain kind of as long as I possibly can. Uh, but I do understand that at some point I have to like, stop compulsively checking our sales funnel and stop compulsively checking my email because uh, it's it continues to build up, which is a good thing. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, something I've yet to really figure out how to how to be doing that in a more sane way. Uh, personally, I, mean, I, I know a lot of people are different than, than me on this. Like, I think I'm 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 very far on a spectrum of people who constantly check these things. Yeah, but I I, just, I can't imagine it ever goes away. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I want to give you a chance. I mean, we've said hellocompass.com like 50 times, but I want to give you a chance to tell anyone where and how to, how to find you and how to find, um, you know, your team. Um, and, but I'm also, I'm, I'm going to give a plug for something else you're working on, which is the In Over Our Heads podcast. <laughs> um, and tell us a little bit about the podcast and, uh, and what you think makes it something that people should be listening to. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think some would call that podcast the original VFA podcast. <laughs> but um, <laughs> get out of my studio. <laughs> <laughs> no, so that was uh, really what that was. Was uh, during training camp with VFA, you build a lot of really strong relationships with people. Um, that's one of the most important parts of the VFA experience. And uh, one of the people I built a really strong relationship with was Shilpi Kumar, who went out to Vegas. I went out to Detroit. Um, we stayed in touch, but we saw this pod, like we ended up having weekly conversations just about what it was like being, you know, 22, 23-year-old trying to figure it out at a startup, which is hard. Um, and we ended up having these really great conversations, like deep conversations, and we decided, hey, what, what if we recorded this? Uh, so we ended up bringing on guests to talk about some of the topics that we would just discuss over the phone. And it's something we, we haven't done a very good job keeping up with it lately, but uh, we do have a, a good archive of pretty good content. Uh, some of the things that I'll be saying in those podcasts are from a much more naive version of myself, but uh, it was definitely a great learning experience and a great way to just uh, like take learning into your own hands and building this podcast so that we could have really cool people come on and like teach us lessons. Like we had Andrew Yang come on and talk to us about networking, which he's obviously very good very at. Good at yeah. um, so th that was just a really cool experience. And uh, it was kind of for people like us that were, you know, just out of college trying to figure stuff out. And that's why it's called inner of our heads because uh, very frequently you may find yourself feeling that way. Where, uh, where can people find it? Uh, in over our co. Okay. Is it on yeah. iTunes as well? Yeah, it's, it's on iTunes, okay. on SoundCloud. Yeah. We're on, we're on iTunes as well. Listen to in over our heads, listen to yeah. smart people should build things like the show, subscribe, all that type of stuff. If there are fellows listening, like yeah. the show. Perfect. Um, and, uh, you know, thanks for thanks for coming here, sharing your story, and uh, it's been awesome. Um, you know, the the original podcaster uh, for VFA, Mike <laughs> Wilmer, the, the very original Mike Wilmer. Uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. And last plug: if you need a professionally designed website, hellocompass.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.